Blog Talk Radio. Oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So today we have uh, planned for our conversation um, a uh, history uh, professional and expert, um, Dr. James Grossman. Jim, uh, welcome to the to the Perkins platform. Glad to have you. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to do it. So Jim is the executive director of the American Historical Association. He's been um, a uh, uh, professor and and lecturer and and just uh, author. Has some great texts and books that um, really interested. I'm sure a lot of you would be interested in in taking a look at. Um, so to our faithful listeners, welcome back. Thank you for being part of our uh, our family every single um, week, uh, thousands of listeners every every week. And to our new listeners, we're glad you've joined us. So um, Jim, you know, I told you, this it goes really fast. And so I'm really excited to have you. We, um, as as I mentioned to you before, we have um, kind of a, a history series of sorts, if you will. Um, last week, we had a professor from um, the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, who um, has done a critique of the 1776 commission. Um, and next week, following you, we have a gentleman who is uh, um, has, has written a bit in um, a number of of national publications about um, the 1619 project. And, and so you right here in the middle is really appropriate to have you talk a little bit, because I know that these, um, these commissions and projects that have been going on have really thrust the, the kind of the teaching of American history into uh, kind of a daily conversation among not just history teachers or professors, but a lot of people who are just interested in knowing more about uh, American history and, and kind of the view from which it should be told. So um, I, I know you're the executive director of the American Historical Association. Tell us a little bit about um, that organization and, and what, you, what you do and, and your mission. Uh, American Historical Association is the largest professional association of historians in the world. Uh, we have approximately 11,500 members. Uh, about two-thirds are college professors. Uh, the rest are students, high school teachers, uh, people who read history because they love to read it but do something else uh, to earn a living. Uh, uh, many of them are historians in places like museums or in the federal government. 
historians work in all sorts of places, which is something a lot of people don't don't realize. Uh, roughly about a quarter to a fifth of all people who get PhDs in history, in fact, uh, end up not uh, being in college or universities or classrooms at all. Uh, so our membership is is very diverse in terms of what people mm-hmm. do, but two thirds are are professors. Uh, we publish a news magazine, which uh, if uh, anybody wants to take a quick look at it, just Google Perspectives on History, uh, American Historical Association. It's uh, totally open access, uh, so it can be read by anybody anytime they want. And it's a news magazine, articles about teaching, about historical objects. Uh, We have a column in there called Everything Has a History, which is, I can talk a little bit about that later, uh, but where people, historians write about uh, objects that are interesting. Uh, And we publish also a scholarly journal called the American Historical Review, which is the most widely read, most widely cited historical journal in the world. So we also have an annual meeting attended by roughly three or 4,000 people. Uh, like everybody else, we didn't do that in person this past year. Uh, we will be doing it in New Orleans. Uh, anybody who lives within striking distance of New Orleans, the first week of January, uh, if you want to have four days of history, history, and history uh, at relatively inexpensive hotel rooms, Uh, Go to our website, and you'll see uh, information about our conference in New Orleans. Mm. We create materials for teachers. We do a lot of advocacy uh, on Capitol Hill. We file lawsuits. We file amicus briefs. Uh, We do advocacy on behalf of historians in foreign countries who are uh, having their rights abridged uh, by governments and other entities. Uh, so we're probably the loudest advocates for history historians. Uh, in general, what we do is we promote history. We promote historical work. We promote historical thinking uh, because we believe that every decision that's made in every boardroom, legislature, uh, regulatory body ought to be informed by historical thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, particularly, I, I just you're going to be in New Orleans. I broadcast out of New Orleans, and and so I'm really uh, I'm going to go to your website and take a look to see when you're going to be around, and uh, and that might be something I'll be able to attend. Uh, I January I, six through nine. Six through nine. Okay. Um, something you know, like that. Right. I, I um, often, when people ask me, I, I ended up majoring in chemistry in college, and and people ask me why, and it's a very good question, but uh, I'll just say I, I had other plans to be in the medical field, but I always said that if I had not been a, uh, a chemistry major, I would have been a history major. Um, I have long been a history buff because I, I'm just fascinated with the details of history. Um, and, and one of the hardest questions for me to answer, I had someone ask me that recently, um, who, uh, a young lady who majored in history, and I, I said that to her, she asked me, what, what is your uh, favorite period of history? And I was like, wow, I got to choose one. Um, but I have so many, but particularly around American history, 
so many areas that I'm interested in. So I'm uh, definitely sure that there are people out there that uh, uh, are of the same mindset as I am around that. Um, you you mentioned that your your the title of your newsletter uh, is History Perspectives, and which is part of why I wanted to have you here. I didn't know that that was the the name of your uh, your um, newsletter. Uh, is that you know I think a lot of people, including myself, believe that history is a set of facts. And I think about a quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who is attributed to, he said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not his own set of facts. You know, there's a lot of of that going on right now where people are talking about recent events and that um, the telling of those facts have been uh, somewhat distorted. And, and, um, and so my first question, I guess, for you is, do you think history has various perspectives that are not, I guess, that are not objective? Um, you know, the, there are some things that happen, and those are facts. But I guess the interpretation of history is where we often get into trouble. What do you What do you think about really that there are different that there are different perspectives based on you know where you are? Well, of course, there's different perspectives because you're interpreting the facts that you see. Uh, And almost anything that you do when you study history or, quite frankly, just about anything else is there are facts, facts that are whether they're observable, whether they're uh, documentable. But when you tell a story, you decide which facts are important and which facts aren't. Well, that's an act of interpretation right there. Because no matter what story I tell, there's an almost infinite amount of information available. And I'm going to choose which information I make available to you, and I'm going to decide in what order that information is. Now, as a historian, I'm often going to be – I'm going to approach it chronologically. So there is an act of interpretation in the very presentation of facts. But Mm -hmm. there still are – documentable facts that we know, we know certain things happen, but then there's something in between, which you might call professional consensus. So, for example, uh, in climate science, uh, there is a professional consensus that the earth is getting warmer. That, that's, that's not a, a single fact. That is an interpretation of the data. Mm-hmm. But it's an interpretation of the data that is pretty much a consensus among people with expertise in that field. Mm-hmm. So the equivalent of that for historians would be that the Civil War was caused by slavery and the Civil War was fought over slavery. There are different possible interpretations, but generally professional historians now pretty much agree that the Civil War was fought over slavery. Mm-hmm. and. So you do have there, – there is – it's not as if everybody can say, well, I can, I can interpret that history just as well as everybody else can. Yes, that's true. Everybody can. But there is expertise involved. Mm-hmm. And 
what we argue is that when public bodies make decisions, they should, when these decisions involve something historical, they should bring historians, history teachers into the room uh, in order to help them think about the facts uh, that are on the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as I started out, I was telling you about, so last week we talked to the professor about the 1776 commission, and then we have the gentleman coming on next week about 1619, these two projects. Um, and, and, you know, I guess, so my question to you is, does your organization hold a position or an opinion about either of these bodies of work? Um, have you know there've been so many statements that have been put out about um, well, this is fact, this is fiction. Uh, this you know one of the critiques last week was that no notable, uh, credible historian had signed on to one of the works. Um, what's your organization's position about both of those or either? So let's start with the 1776 Commission because that's easier. Uh, anybody who is listening to this who wants to know our position on the 1776 Commission uh, can find it in a few places. Uh, if you go to our website, you will see on the left side of our homepage, uh, uh, www.historians.org, you will find on the left side of the homepage, it says AHA Advocacy. If you click there, and then you do a search for 1776, you will see our statement on 1776. You'll probably also find it if you just Google American Historical Association and 1776 Commission Report. Uh, if you Google my name and 1776 Commission, you will find an article I wrote for the New York Daily News. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's many places in which you could find what we've said about it. And basically, the 1776 Commission is fairly straightforward. There is not a single person on that commission who, in fact, is a professional, uh, who is a professional historian with expertise in U.S. history. Mm. There's one guy on there who is who has written professional history, but it's mainly ancient military history. I so see. that's the first thing: is mm-hmm. if you wanted to read a report on the latest trends in heart surgery, you wouldn't look for a dozen people, none of whom is a heart surgeon. Right, exactly. And and so that's the first problem, is that this is a report created by people without any expertise in the room. Mm-hmm. And you know, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want a report on the state of American bridges uh unless you had some civil engineers at the table. So that's Absolutely. the first problem with that <laughs> report. And what it means is that what they created is not a work of professional historical scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's riddled with errors, uh, and we have documented those errors. And it is riddled with, with various kinds of both factual and interpretive untruths. Mm-hmm. Uh, it connects things that don't connect. Uh, so it, it's just not something to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it also, one of the problems is that it's, it was established, I think in part, obviously, to 
counter some of the arguments that were presented by you raised the 1619 uh, project. And the 1619 project, on the other hand, uh, is it's controversial. Uh, it, the work includes uh, work by historians, uh, also work by people who are professionals in other realms. There's a sociologist, it's headed by a journalist, uh, but it is informed by the work of, of historians. There are differences of interpretation uh, that people will have. There are professional historians who have said that this, that, or the other thing doesn't make sense to them. Uh, there are the kinds of arguments that historians have over one another's work. Uh, this is new. It just came out for years. Uh, anybody in your audience, for example, who has taken economics in college uh, probably used Samuelson's textbook, which is now in its, I don't know, 53rd edition or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. It's constantly revised. The chemistry textbook that you use in college, textbooks, were works that were revised every couple of years sure. as professional chemist scholars read through the various things that were being produced and evaluated them and would change, in essence, the consensus in the discipline. Well, it's the same thing here. And the mm -hmm. 1619 Project will be you know, has been evaluated by scholars. For some people, parts of it make more sense than others. What's absolutely crucial? And this is what's being ignored here because what people have done is they've set these two things up as poles. You're either mm -hmm. in one camp or the other. That's right. That's and this, right. Makes, this makes no sense at all, to be honest. Uh, anybody who wants to understand what happened in 1776 and what happened when the Constitution was written and ratified knows, and this is a fact, when we want to get to facts versus interpretation. It is a fact that the people who wrote, the, that most of the people who wrote those documents grew up in slave societies. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a fact. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. I, I'm not going to say whether one should apologize for that or whether how one evaluates Jefferson. Jefferson was a slaveholder. Washington was a, was a slaveholder. Madison was a slaveholder. The people who had central roles in writing these documents were slaveholders. What does that mean? It means that they grew up in a world that was shaped by the system of slavery. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they were good people or bad people. You can make an argument that they were bad people or good people. But the fact is that the worldviews that they had were shaped by the system of human slavery. Mm -hmm. Just the same way as I grew up uh, in the suburbs of New York City, and there's ways in which my view of the world was shaped by the world around me uh, in New York City, in the area around New York City, by the school I went to. One of the differences is that I left there when I was 18 these people, their grandparents, their parents, they through their whole lives lived in a world which was, which was dominated by a labor system that was enslavement, mm -hmm. by a social system that was dominated by human slavery, by a political system 
that was shaped in, at least in part by the system of slavery. So it is simply not possible to argue that the documents created in the, eight, in the 1770s and 1780s were not influenced by ideas that drew from the world of slaveholders. It's simply mm -hmm. not possible. Mm -hmm. it, it, it would be like saying that if you had played football for 25 years with a single coach, and then you went out and coached, and someone were to say, there was nothing that you're doing out there on the field that's not shaped by that coach. That's ridiculous. So what's being forgotten here is that we've created these two extremes as to whether something called the founding, whatever that is, mm -hmm. is in 1619 versus 1776. Mm -hmm. That political nation and its founding documents and its founders were shaped by a system of human labor, uh, ownership of human labor, ownership of humans that began in the 17th century and existed for 150 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are facts. You were asking before about facts. Those are facts. Now, any historian or any student in a history class who is given a set of readings can then say, okay, now what am I going to do with that fact, with those facts? How were those people influenced by the fact that they were enmeshed in a system of slavery? Easy example. They're creating, uh, the founders are creating uh, structures for taxation. What are they? This is this is before we have any idea of an income tax. They're taxing property. If you live in Virginia, as opposed to Connecticut, if you live in Virginia, what is the what are the two forms of property that have the greatest value? Land and enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So your ideas about taxation are going to be shaped by the way you think about land and the way you think about enslaved people, because that's the property that you're taxing. If you live in Connecticut, you're not thinking about property taxes in quite the same way, because you're not enmeshed in a world in which one of the major uh, – one of the largest uh, – part of the largest property value is humans. So there are many ways in which when they're constructing this government, the famous three-fifths clause, what's that all about? It's all about trying to figure out how a representative democratic government deals with the problem of a substantial portion of the population that is not permitted to participate is not considered part of the polity, is not, does not have access to citizenship, but the people who own them, the enslavers, want to count them in terms of representation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to deal with that. There's a paradox there. You have to somehow yes. deal with that. You have to deal with the fact that people who have dehumanized the population want to count them as humans, in the, their right. representation in the Congress. 
Right, when it suits them, when and it's to their advantage. When it suits them. That, yeah. That's right. So, which, again, that's very logical. It makes sense. But there's absolutely no way of understanding how we're setting up the legislature and the evolution of the three-fifths clause unless we understand that's what's going on. Sure, sure. Teaching, teaching this is fairly, in, in a sense, is straightforward in terms of what these facts are. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is you want to put this on the table for the students and say, okay, how do we think about this? What does the word democracy mean? And I'm not going to tell the students what the word democracy means in the, 18, in the 1770s and the 1780s. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell them, well, what happens if, how, does the, how, does, how do concepts of democracy change as people who are trying to set up a democratic system, a republic, are wrestling with these paradoxes? Mm-hmm. Let them read, let them, let, them, let them see the biographical context in which these people live. Yes. Let them read the words, figure it out. I so agree with you. I, I agree. Up, so to set these things up as poles apart just makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I don't, and I think one of the problems has been that, but that there are groups of, politicians and others that don't want that uh, debate, shall I say, to occur. It is, you know, patriotic education. You hear words like that and, and phrases that are around, you know, teaching, teaching students to love America. Um, I, have no, I have no problem with patriotic education. Again, any of your listeners, Google James Grossman, uh, teaching patriotism, American history. I've written about this more than once. I have mm-hmm. no problem with teaching patriotism. The question is what constitutes patriotism? Yeah. What makes somebody a good citizen is knowing history, is being able to think about history, is being able to wrestle with the ideas that emerge over time. That, I, 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 you know, for me, that's what patriotic education is, is teaching people to be intelligent, critical thinkers, because mm. that's what makes a great country. A great country is made up of, of great people, and if you want to make people great, educate them as best you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, and I had a, a couple of questions that you – I think you have uh, – brilliantly come full circle around talking about this in a way that um, we couldn't have even planned. Um, And the questions just straightforward wouldn't have uh, uh, elicited the same uh, response. So thanks for, um, you know, using those very um, relevant um, examples, um, thinking about the the founders and, and thinking about their context. Cause I, I think, when you mention that it's a paradox, that that's where perspectives come in, is that it's it's many things at the same time, depending on where you are in the equation um, and and what position you hold in that equation. Um, I have a uh, a text message that came in just now 
uh, asking about history standards. Are there, uh, the question is, are there national history standards endorsed by your organization? Um, if not, who, who do you think should be representative of a committee to create these standards? So first, I guess the question is, are there national history standards endorsed by your organization? Uh, we've endorsed what's called the C3 curriculum, which was created by a committee organized by the National Council for the Social Studies. Uh, we didn't uh, just endorse them. We participated in the creation. And it's not mm-hmm. just U.S. history. It includes world history. But it's not really a curriculum. It's, it's about ways in which people should think about teaching history. There was an attempt back in the 90s, I believe it was, to create national history standards. It was a total disaster uh, because agreeing is impossible. However, what we do have, and this is a consensus among historians, is not about standards for what we teach. There is a consensus of, about standards for, what, for how one thinks historically. And if you go, if you just go open up, a, open up a Google, uh, open up a, a URL and Google American Historical Association tuning, T-U-N-I-N-G, mm-hmm. discipline core, C-O-R-E, what you will find is a two-page document that basically explains what, what a history student learns, what a history student can do. Not in terms of content, but in terms of the skills. And that is the essence of what it means to teach and learn history, are the different skills that you have. Because Mm -hmm. you can get 10 historians or history teachers in a room, and you'll have 10 opinions about what it is they should know. Mm -hmm. But we all agree on what they should know how to do. And that's the standards that we do have. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. We're almost out of time, but I can't help but to let people know about uh, one of your books that is entitled Land of Hope, Chicago, Black Southerners and the Great Migration and a Chance to Make Good. Um, uh, I guess, well, the the migration book is the first one, Um, is um, I, I mentioned to you before we um, before we started that um, I, you know, being born and raised in Alabama, um, my, my family, both on my father's side, mother's side from Alabama, and my, my maternal grandfather uh, left Alabama. And I found out that that was in about 1948. Um, he left Alabama. I know your at least I think your um, your book covers a different time period, um, but he left in about 1948, and subsequently um, a lot of family members left Alabama and also went to Chicago. So I'm I'm looking forward to reading that um, to see if there are any connections that sound familiar to me. Um, tell me a little I bit about um, about that. I suspect that there will be, and I, I'm glad to hear that about your background. Uh, one of my closest friends when I lived in Chicago uh, is a fellow named Tim Ewell Black. And Tim, Tim's parents and Tim came to Chicago from Alabama in 1919. Uh, Tim was wow. born in 1918, and he's, he's currently 100 and 
uh, two years old. Wow. Uh, and and going strong. And and Tim was one of the people, well, well, many years I lived in Chicago, from whom I learned uh, an awful lot, was one of my mentors mm-hmm. for a long time. And his family came from Alabama. Uh, and they came, and it was a very, in a way, a very typical story. They came because his father was uh, somebody who uh, really couldn't, didn't want to deal with uh, the ways in which black and white people uh, had to interact in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his mother, his mother and father realized that they couldn't make a life for their one-year-old child, and they moved from Alabama to Chicago uh, in 1919. One of the differences between that period and the period when your family came is that in the period when your family came, a lot of people were being thrown off the farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mechanical cotton gin started to be used in the late 1940s. Sure. So in that early period, there's more of a choice that people were making. I'm going to go there because I think that my future and my family's future is better than it is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that period when your family came, it was for many people much more, I got to go somewhere. And where am yeah. I going to go? Sure, sure. And in that many cases familiar. where they went, yeah, and where they, many cases where they went depended upon who else was already someplace. Yeah. They might have had cousins in Chicago. They might have had people from their hometown. So in that sense, because it was a generation and a half later, the dynamic there was a little bit, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms mm-hmm. of the influence of Southern culture in Northern cities, it's, it's very much part of the same, the same process. Absolutely. And, and just from what I know about uh, having visited on several occasions, there are a lot of people in Chicago with Southern roots. Um, you can't go very Absolutely. far. Um, without Absolutely. finding someone from Mississippi or Alabama, Georgia, uh, in in Chicago. So, but I thank you so much for that. And I um, know we're out of time, but it has been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. And 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 as I said, maybe in February I'll get a chance to meet you in person. Um, I am looking forward to learning more about um, the organization and and certainly what you have. Uh, added today to me, it's been very uh, helpful, and I'm sure there are others that have been listening um, will have found it uh, also to be helpful. Um, just want to remind people to join us next week, also um, at 6 p.m. Um, uh, uh, a week from today, um, to hear Zaid Jelani. Um, he did a critique in the New York Times of the 1619 Project, and um, comments also on the historical accuracy of key components of this project. So he'll be joining us next week. Um, I think hearing uh, from you today, Jim, gives a, uh, also some additional kind of sticky material to, to use when we uh, talk to Zaid next week. Um, and, and so um, just want to give you an opportunity. I know you have uh, some websites and Twitter accounts. I uh, would love to hear if you have some, some things you want to share where we might follow and get additional information from you. Sure. Uh, and you can, you, anytime you want to hear more from you, if for anybody who really cares uh, and can stand it, uh, you can just go, my Twitter handle is at Jim Grossman, A-H-A. Uh, and you'll see commentary on these sorts of things. Uh, you won't see very much that's negative. Uh, I try to maintain a positive tone. But at Jim Grossman AHA, 
And you you can find the American Historical Association's official Twitter account where a lot of this kind of information uh, can be found, uh, which is at AHA Historians. Uh, and those would be the places that you could go. Our website is uh, historians.org, and you'll find all sorts of information about any aspect of history. Uh, everything has a history, so there is nobody out there who should not be interested in history. doesn't matter what you're interested in. It has a history. Thank you so much, Jim. been so uh, so good to talk to you. And until next time, to all the listeners, go well, stay well. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you.